pray that you would, even this morning, continue to reveal yourself to us. Continue to reveal where we have fallen short of your glory. Where we have sinned and where we need to repent. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us. That you would speak to us. That you would reveal yourself to us. That you would do so in such a way that would mold us and shape us and would bring you glory through our lives. We're here for you, for your honor, for your praise. So Lord, would you speak to us? We ask you to speak to us in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. When I was growing up, The Wizard of Oz was my mom's favorite movie. I remember it so vividly because we had this vintage Wizard of Oz poster hanging in my living room when I was growing up, so it was a constant reminder of this movie. And one of the most vivid memories I have from The Wizard of Oz is when Dorothy stepped out of the black and white Kansas house into the technicolor world of Oz. You know the story, don't you? Even though Oz is dazzling with vivid colors and incredible sights that stretch the imagination, Dorothy wants to go back home. Because as we all know, there's no place like home. And so Dorothy goes on this pilgrimage to the Emerald City, where she's told that a great and a powerful wizard can get her back home. And along the way, she meets various friends who also want to make requests of this wizard. And after a long journey, they're finally granted access to this wizard, and they are terrified by the flashes of light and the smoke and the thunderous voice. Surely the Wizard of Oz is a terrifying and awesome being who has absolute power to do whatever he pleases. They are shaking in the presence of this great wizard until Dorothy's little dog, Toto, pulls back the curtain and reveals a little old man controlling all the lights and the sounds with wheels and levers and buttons and microphones. See, when you pull back the curtain, the great and powerful Wizard of Oz is really just a scam. The wizard is actually just like everyone else. He actually doesn't have the power and the glory that everyone thinks he has. Now, of course, the story ends much more positively than I'm saying, but to the cynic, the message of the Wizard of Oz is that nothing in all the universe is worth wonder and awe and worship, right? When you pull back the curtain of the things and the people that we think are so great, we find that they're not that impressive, right? We've all been taught this by this world, that things are not actually as good as they seem, that nothing is actually as good as it seems, right? We tell our kids, if it seems too good to be true, it's because it is. But in contrast to this cynicism, the Bible teaches that God is indeed as good as He says He is. And indeed, that He is actually better than we could even imagine. Revelation chapter 4 actually pulls back the curtain of heaven for us. And what we find 
when the curtain of heaven is pulled back, is a God who is majestic and radiant and worthy of the worship of all creation. He's worthy not just of the worship of a few beings or a group of people, but He is worthy of worship from all of creation. So let's read and consider this majestic passage, Revelation chapter 4 this morning. If you, if you don't have a Bible with you, maybe you can find one of the black pew Bibles in front of you. This should be on page 1030 in the Pew Bible. The book of Revelation is the very last book in the Bible, and we started a series at the beginning of this year just making our way a passage at a time through Revelation, and here we are at Revelation chapter 4. Listen to God's Word. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the Word of God. May God write its truths on our hearts. Notice what happens in verse 1. John sees something. 
after the vision of the glory of Jesus that he saw in chapter 1, and after the seven letters to the seven churches dictated to John in chapters 2 and 3, John sees a door standing open in heaven. And John would have no idea what to do with this door except for the fact that he hears a voice along with seeing this door. It's the same trumpet-like voice that he heard in chapter 1, verse 10. It's the voice of the exalted Lord Jesus inviting John to enter that door. Jesus invites John to see what will soon take place. Now this reminds us that Jesus is the only way to God. Right? Jesus is always the mediator between God and man. He is the door of salvation. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. And so listen, if you're here today and you don't trust Jesus as your mediator, you don't know God and you are not His child. Only through Jesus can we have our sins forgiven and have an eternal relationship with God. The worship and splendor and awe that we are about to see in this passage is only for those who come to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in verse 2, John says that he was transported from the island of Patmos where he was, and he was in the Spirit in heaven. He was actually given access to see what is going on in the throne room of heaven. He is spiritually there. Now this reminds us that there, there's something more than just what we can see and touch. What we can see and touch is not the only real things there are. You get this? There is a spiritual realm that exists right now. Indeed, has always existed even before the physical world was created. And this spiritual realm is just as real as everything we can see and touch. And John is given a glimpse, a rare glimpse, at what is happening in the spiritual realm. And notice carefully what is at the center and focus of the spiritual realm. The first and the most central thing that John sees when he's transported to heaven is a throne and the one seated on the throne. Now, we need to understand that this throne is of paramount importance in the book of Revelation. This throne is mentioned 17 times in chapters 4 and 5 alone. And I'm not counting the references to, to the lesser thrones that we're going to see in just a minute, to the throne, the main throne, 17 references in chapters 4 and 5 alone. And this throne is going to be mentioned an additional 21 times in the rest of the book of Revelation. The activity of this book centers on and flows from this majestic throne. 
That is a, a point to star and highlight as we move through the rest of the book of Revelation. The activity of this book centers on and flows from this majestic throne. Now make no mistake about it. The purpose of this throne is to emphasize the sovereignty of God over all of creation, over all of history. God is sovereign, meaning He is in control completely of all of human history, of all human rulers, including the Roman Caesar, and over all that happens to believers. God is in control of it all. Everything in heaven finds its significance in placement around this throne. Our God is on the throne of the universe. That's where He is right now. He is in charge. None can thwart His plans. None can question His absolute authority because He is on the throne. And so just take this scene in. We're encouraged here to see this throne in all of its majestic glory. John wants us to use our imagination in picturing this scene in the throne room of heaven. Seeing this throne in all of its wonder and beauty is meant by God to give encouragement and perseverance to our lives in the here and now. Remember, this book is written to suffering believers. Written to believers who are undergoing massive persecutions and this vision of the throne is meant to encourage these believers to press on and to not give up. So when we get a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, when we get a glimpse into the spiritual realm, what do we see there? What, what do we see there? Well, we're going to talk about what we see there, but let me just briefly take one step back and ask the question, what do we not see there? When we get a picture of what's going on in heaven, what's not going on there? Well, in heaven, notice we do not see panic or fret or worry or chaos. Listen, God does not panic. He is on the throne, right? He is in complete control. And that puts all of our sufferings and all of our sorrows and all of our sins in their proper place. No matter what is going on in this physical earthly realm, the throne in heaven is occupied. No matter what is going on, no matter who's president of the United States or president of Saudi Arabia, no matter who's on the throne of this world, the throne in heaven is occupied. And so let's spend the rest of our time this morning beholding this majestic throne. I want you to notice three things about this throne. I want you to notice the sights and sounds of the throne, the creatures around the throne, and of course, most importantly, the one sitting on the throne. So first notice the sights and the sounds of the throne. Notice the sights and sounds of the throne. In verse 3, Notice John begins to try to describe what it is that he saw. Now, of course, John is using symbolic language and metaphors to describe what he saw because what he saw is indescribable to, for human language. And so the goal isn't to paint this literally. The goal isn't to draw a picture of what we see here. No, the goal is to be caught up in the wonder of it all. 
The goal is to be swept up in the beauty and majesty of all of this wonder. And so the beauty of these sights, the beauty of these sounds, is meant to point us to the beauty of the One sitting on the throne. Notice John begins to describe the radiance of the throne by using a few different beautiful stones or gems in verse 3. John says he saw the appearance of jasper and carnelian, or your translation may say sardius. Both of these stones were part of the high priest's breastplate in Exodus 28. And so when God was designing this breastplate for the priest to wear to represent the people, He included these two stones. These gems are beautiful in appearance, and they were known to diffuse the light and provide dazzling displays of color. So when you think of these gems, don't think of a solid color, but more of a a translucent color. Something that the light is shining through. I, I imagine, using a little bit of sanctified imagination, that if John were living in the 21st century... He might describe what he saw around the throne kind of like a laser light show or maybe like a multicolored disco ball spreading color everywhere you look. Verse 3, John also says that around the throne he saw a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, of course, now we know why God chose a rainbow to be the symbol of His faithfulness to His promises to Noah after the flood. Why did God choose a rainbow to symbolize His promises? Well, because the rainbow had always existed surrounding God's throne to display His glory and His honor. God didn't just create a rainbow in Genesis chapter 6. No, this rainbow is symbolic of God's mercy, His justice towards sinners that has always radiated from His throne. The reason God puts a rainbow in the sky is to remind us of His glory and particularly of His commitment to His promises. Notice also what John saw and heard in verses 5 and 6. John says, "...from the throne came flashes of lightning." and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This loud lightning, this thunder, should remind us of the terrifying scene in front of Mount Sinai where The Lord manifested His glory and thunder and lightning to His people. In Isaiah 6, when the Lord shows up, the the temple and the ground trembles. And seven torches of fire are there representing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the floor of this throne room was still and quiet as beautiful as a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. This throne and this worship scene in heaven is dazzling and radiant and loud and beautiful and terrifying. And it all communicates the majesty of the One sitting on the throne. Before we look at Him specifically, I want you to notice secondly, number two, the creatures around the throne. So we see what's happening. We hear it. 
But also notice these creatures, the creatures around the throne. All of these various creatures around the throne, again, are there to point to the worth and beauty and majesty of God. In verse 4, we're introduced to 24 lesser thrones that surround the throne of God. And these 24 thrones contain 24 elders who are clothed in white and who have golden crowns on their heads. Now, when the book of Revelation speaks about 24 elders who sit on 24 thrones around the throne of God, it's not using the term elders to refer to a church leadership position. That's how we usually use the term elders around here. So these are not local church pastors sitting on these 24 thrones. Rather, elders in Revelation 4 and 5 seem to be angelic representatives of all redeemed humanity. So 24 is most likely a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. And so these 24 elders are on thrones with God's authority. They're ruling with God's authority as representatives of all those whom God has redeemed. In other words, they represent the big C church. All Christians from all times in all places. That's why they're called elders. Because they represent the rule given to the ransom people of God. And so, I don't think these are specific humans. So, the goal isn't say, okay, who are the 24 most godly people who have ever lived? And those are the ones sitting on the throne. No, that's not the picture of all. I think they represent all of redeemed humanity. I think what John sees likely represents what all human all redeemed humans will be doing for all eternity, and that is ruling and reigning with and worshiping our triune God. These 24 elders may be representing the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles thus represent all of us. I think John means for us to see ourselves sitting on these thrones, worshiping the One who reigns eternally. And so friends, as we gather for worship, like we're doing right now with the Little C local church, we're doing so with the understanding that right now, the people of God are worshiping around the throne of God. Listen, we don't initiate the worship of God. Like, we don't turn on the worship when 10.30 starts and Mike starts playing the piano. That's not when worship starts. It's already going on around the throne of God. And we join in with that worship that's going on right now. And we're to understand our whole lives to be that. As we worship the Lord, we're joining in this chorus that is around the throne of God. And so we have the 24 elders. They're sitting on thrones around the throne. But we also then have these four living creatures in verses 6-8. through eight. We're told that these four living creatures are full of eyes all around, and each of them has six wings. One of them is like a lion. One of them is like an ox. One of them has the face of a man. And one of them is like an eagle in flight. Now, we can't know for sure what all of this represents, but perhaps these creatures represent 
all of God's creation. The lion is the noblest of creatures, right? The ox is the strongest of God's creatures. The human is the wisest. And the eagle is the swiftest. And so maybe these four creatures show us how all of God's creation is designed to worship and praise God constantly. Also, we know there are parallels to these creatures in other parts of Scripture, like Ezekiel chapter 1. And so we know that John is drawing on the imagery that he already has from Scripture. Now, what is supremely important here is not who these creatures are. Listen, please do not get caught up in trying to answer the question of who these creatures are. What's most important here is what they do. Notice what the living creatures do in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And what do they do? Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Day and night, they never cease to declare this praise to God. And notice what the 24 elders do when the living creatures sing this praise, shout this praise to the God on the throne. What do the 24 elders do? Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy, worthy are you. And so the inhabitants of this throne room are doing one thing with ultimate passion and focus. They worship nonstop. They are obsessed with the glory of the one sitting on the throne. They exist to make much of their Creator, to make much of their Redeemer. In fact, notice again what verses 9 and 10 say about what these 24 elders do. What do they do? It says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to God. Now, when is whenever according to verse 8? According to verse 8, always, right? Day and night. They never cease to worship God. And so, verse 9, whenever the living creatures worship, what do the 24 elders do? Look at verse 10. They do three specific things. They do three specific things in worship. First, They fall down before God. They fall down. So their verbal praise is accompanied with physical acts of adoration. They literally bow down. They demonstrate humility and worship by prostrating themselves on the ground. But they do something else. Secondly, they cast their crowns before the throne. What is that about? Why do they cast their crowns before the throne? Well, casting your crown down was a sign of surrender. It was a sign of allegiance to a king. To cast your crown down is to say, you're not worthy of it, someone else is. And friends, that is what we will do with any kind of honor or goods that we are given in heaven by the Lord Jesus. 
Listen, Jesus will reward us with the gifts of His grace. He will clothe us in His own garments and we will just cast them down before Him. He will continue to honor us and we will continue to declare Him worthy of our praise. This was an interesting moment in family worship this past week as we read this passage and we began to talk about how, how do you continually cast your crown down? Right? They're worshiping nonstop, never ceasing, and whenever they worship nonstop, ceasing day and night, they cast their crowns down. How is that not a one-time act? I, I think, I don't know, but I think as we cast it down, Jesus puts it back on our head. We cast it down, and Jesus puts it back on our head. And we cast it down, saying, you are worthy and so they fall down, they cast their crowns down continually before the Lord. And notice third, they say something. They bow down, they cast their crowns down, and they declare the praise of Almighty. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so let's consider what it is these creatures in heaven say about the one sitting on the throne. That's the third and final point, the most important one, the one sitting on the throne. All of this activity, all of this color, all of this sound is pointing to the one sitting on the throne, to the triune God of all of creation. And so we learn some things here about this God in these shouts of praise, in these songs of declaration. In fact, let me highlight five characteristics of God that we see here. And again, these, these ought to be prompts for us to ceaselessly worship this God. When we see who He is, we worship Him. Notice first, He's in charge. He's in charge. Being on the throne means you're in charge, right? God is sovereign. He's the one calling the shots. Notice in verse 8 that the specific praise voiced in worship is that He is the Lord God Almighty. God exists with absolute power and authority. He is the Almighty, meaning He does as He pleases, when He pleases. Friends, please hear this. You are not in control. I'm not in control. It's kind of freeing to say that, friends. You're not in control. You're not on the throne of the universe. I know you think you could do a better job at ruling and reigning the universe, but it's not true. So trust the God who is on the throne. He knows what He's doing and His purpose will never, no, never be thwarted. He's in charge. Secondly, He's utterly holy. He is utterly holy. The creatures in heaven constantly declare that God is holy, holy, holy. They don't just declare that He is holy. They don't just declare that He is holy, holy. They declare that He is holy, holy, holy. This is the only one of God's attributes raised to the third degree. It tells us that everything God is and everything God does is holy. Now, it's impossible to define exactly what it means to say that God is holy. This is who He is. This is His essence. But we can at least say that it means He is free from all defilement. He is free from all sin. And he is also completely devoted to his own purposes. As 1 John 1 says, God is light and in him is no 
darkness at all. He is separate from sin and He is passionate about His own glory. And so when you think about God, you should think about His absolute holiness, His otherness, His perfection. He is totally separated from anything sinful or defiling. And when you think about God, you should think about His relentless passion to accomplish His own purposes. He is devoted to Himself and glorifying His own name and being seen as great in the world. He is different and He is devoted. That's what it means to call Him holy. Third, notice He's eternal. This God on the throne is eternal. In verse 8, notice the praise to the, is to the Holy One who was and is and is to come. That's mind-blowing, is it not? I know we just read over this sometimes as if it's just, we've heard these words so many times. That's mind-boggling. What does it mean to be the one who was and is and is to come? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And notice in verses 9 and 10, both verses, so two times it says, they give glory and honor and thanks to Him who lives forever and ever. Friends, God is life. He never had a beginning and He will never have an end. Remember God said to Moses, I am who I am. God is eternal. Fourth, notice He is Creator and sustainer of all. The one on the throne is the creator and the sustainer of everything. Notice at the end of verse 11, God is praised because He created all things and by His will they exist. <laughs> Think about the statement that God created all things. All things. And remember that God created everything out of nothing. Nothing existed but God and He spoke everything into existence. And He didn't just create the world and then spin it and let it go on its own. No, He now sustains all of creation. Right? It is by His will that everything exists. In other words, if He took His hand off of it, it would completely explode. He is holding all together from His throne. He is sustaining you and me and everything in all of creation. And so fifth and finally notice that He is worthy of ultimate worship. He is worthy of ultimate worship. In verse 11, the elders say, worthy are you. You are worthy of the highest praise from all creatures in all of creation. See, friends, these creatures around the throne, these elders, they are majestic beings. If we were to see these angelic beings, we would be tempted to worship them. But what are they doing? They are worshiping the one on the throne and they provide for us an example of true worship for us. This is how God is worshiped as worthy in heaven. And thus, this is how we should worship Him as worthy here on earth. We have in Revelation chapter 4, we have this in our Bible to remind us of what God deserves. In the mundane moments of our lives, in the regular old Monday afternoon, this is the worship going on around the throne. And we are invited, friends, to join this party. Do you think God needs you to worship Him? Do you think God needs you to worship Him? Do you think He's up there worried that I might not give Him the glory that's due Him? 
No, friends. He has a host of glorious beings giving Him ultimate honor and glory. He does not need worship from us. But here's the amazing truth. God doesn't need our worship, but He knows that's the best thing for us. He knows that's the best. He knows that's why we were designed. That's why we were created to give Him this glory and this honor. Friends, God is central in the spiritual realm, and thus He ought to be central in the here and now of our lives. Everything is designed to revolve around this throne, including you and I, including our families, including our church, including every part of our lives. And so, friends, with this majestic vision of the throne before us, as the curtain is pulled back and we see that He is worthy of our worship and our praise, let me ask you an evaluative question. I want you to honestly evaluate yourself and your life right now. As you think about this majestic throne, as you think about this worship that is going on even now in the spiritual realm, how glorious is your little kitty throne looking now? We do this, don't we? We set up this little cardboard throne where we're the ruler of our domain, right? We got the crown on our head and we got the throne we're sitting on and we try to rule and we try to reign everyone and everything around us. We try to play God. But friends, listen, you and I are terrible at playing God. We are terrible at that. And you know what? I think this explains why we're so messed up. And this right here explains why we are so messed up, right? You, you know why everything feels out of balance in your life? It's because you're trying to sit on the throne and you're not God. This explains maybe why you get so angry when people don't respect you and serve you and bow before your little throne. Because you think you're God. Right? That's what anger is. That's what unrighteous anger is. Unrighteous anger is someone challenged my throne and I'm mad about it because I'm God. This explains why you're so addicted. Because you can't come to terms with the fact that you don't control your life. And friends, I love you enough to break this news to you because I'm breaking it to myself. This is why the people in your life feel like they have to walk on eggshells around you. Because they walk around wondering when you're going to explode on them because they challenged your claim to the throne. You ever wonder why it seems you have a graveyard of broken relationships and broken promises all around you? It's probably because you're sitting on the throne and trying to play God and you can't even see it. Instead of worshiping the only one who is worthy to sit on that throne. Dear friends, this passage is bad news for us who are self-sufficient and desire to control our lives and control the people's lives around us. This is bad news. You are not good at playing God. But if you have ears to hear, if you have ears to hear, this passage is incredibly good news. Incredibly good news. And the good news is this. God is on the throne as He has always been. And therefore, you don't have to be. 
You don't have to rule and reign and control the world. That's not what you were designed to do. That's not the throne you're called to sit on. There's already one sitting on that throne, and He is perfectly holy and righteous and just. Listen, if you this morning right now submit to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ, if you order your life around Him, you will find that there is true peace and purpose and healing and that it is sweet and it is freeing. Because the One on the throne is worthy of glory and honor and thanks. Let's give Him that now. God, You're on the throne. Forgive us for trying to be on the throne. Forgive us for trying to sit on our little kitty thrones and neglecting You and not worshiping You as You deserve. And I thank You for this reminder this morning. I thank You for the conviction we feel. Lord, I pray that conviction would work itself out in true obedience and true healing and true freedom. God, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, His payment for our, all our sins, including our sins of trying to sit on the throne. Humble us today, O oh God, and help us as You humble us to love others well. Help us to live a life of worship and honor and praise to You. And Help us now to behold our God seated on the throne. Help us, we pray. For your, for your glory, for the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.